You're listening to Music Box, official podcast of London Centre of Contemporary Music. We're coming to you with fresh artists, music news and industry insider info about the music biz and beyond. Hi, my name is Tom Croisdale and I'm a young blues artist and current LCCM student. In May 2016 I released my debut EP, This Way Up, consisting of four blues rock songs that I wrote myself and recorded with a band of three other LCCM students. The band consisted of Liam Hornsby on drums, Ellie Olives on bass and Will Wood on saxophone. I'm influenced by lots of blues artists such as Eric Clapton, BB King and Robert Cray. The EP and title track are named after the logo often seen on cardboard boxes and nicely sums up the optimistic feel behind the EP. These four songs are also among the first songs I've written. We recorded it over a period of a few months at the studios at LCCM with the help of Nick Hunt. On the release day we had a really great gig on a boat on the River Thames, which was lots of fun and a great way to launch the EP. We also had Inca, who was a great support act. You can get physical copies of the EP on my website, tomcroysdale.co.uk, or download and stream it through iTunes, Spotify and most other online services. You can also find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and YouTube as Tom Croyser. That's C-R-O-Y-S-D-I-L-L. This song is the second track of the EP called All In My Head. I really hope you enjoy it. the news in brief. James Blunt has warned us that 2017 is set to be worse than 2016. The singer tweeted, if you thought 2016 was bad, I'm releasing a new album this year. If you haven't discovered James Blunt's Twitter feed yet, then you really need to, if only for his sharp comebacks to the abuse he regularly gets. He puts his haters down and isn't shy about just how bad they think his music really is. 
SoundCloud has reached agreements with licensing companies that will mean DJ mixes won't be removed for copyright infringement. The streaming site's founder, Eric Walforce, explained the platform's licensing deals in an interview with Groove. At the moment, SoundCloud uses a computer database to scan for copyrighted material, so DJs can only upload mixes using certain songs if they have permission. Some DJs are hesitant to post mixes because they're afraid they might be taken down. The founder didn't say when the changes will start, but it's a step in a good direction for musicians everywhere. Ed Sheeran has changed all his social media profiles to a plain blue image exactly a year after he took a break from the internet, prompting fans to believe that he might be ready to make his comeback. This time last year, he announced he would be taking the opportunity to travel the world and would see us all next autumn. Twelve months later, it looks like Ed Sheeran is ready to make his comeback. Bob Dylan said it was truly beyond words to receive a Nobel Prize for Literature last week. In a speech read on his behalf at the ceremony in Sweden, he said he thought his odds of winning were as likely as him standing on the moon. The songwriter told those at the event in Sweden he was there in spirit and thanked the Academy for seeing his songs as works of literature. Millions of dollars in unclaimed music royalties in the US will be distributed by YouTube following an agreement with the US National Music Publishers Association. The payout refers to tracks with unknown owners used on the platform between August 2012 and December 2015. Publishers who opt in will be sent a list and will then have a window in which to claim ownership of each track. After that, the remaining unclaimed royalties will be shared amongst them. The total amount to be offered has not been confirmed, but was reported by the New York Times to be in excess of £31 million. Spotify is currently in talks to buy SoundCloud, while nothing has been confirmed by either company at this point, a price of one billion US dollars has been floated between the industry giants. This piece of news comes just a few months after SoundCloud officially entered the paid streaming music world by launching its Go product back in March. While there was plenty of excitement surrounding the powerful music site entering the streaming wars, not much has been heard from about Go since its debut, and it's suspected that the service has yet to accrue even one million paying subscribers. That was the news in brief. Hi, I'm here with Mike McAvoy, Head of Songwriting at LCCM, whose career spans the titles of songwriter, composer, arranger, musical director, session musician, conductor, just to name a few. Um, he scored feature films, toured with major artists, lived and worked internationally, and has a hand in a multitude of projects. Today we're going to talk, um, hopefully for not too long, about his journey through music, his career development, and hopefully he'll share a bit of insight that he's acquired over the years. So, um, your journey into music seems to have started very early. Um, with your childhood and your family. Um, can you give us just a tiny synopsis into your earlier years, moving from your education into your initial foray into being a working musician? Um, great. Um, by the way, thank you for asking me to do this. Yeah, and, yeah, no uh, problem. <laughs> I, I really, you know, I appreciate the opportunity and uh, I'll try to, um, you know, be relevant. And uh, I mean, there's so much, of course, I could share about, but... Um, <laughs> I have a, I sort of, you know, for me, my reason, I suppose, I got, in, you know, was motivated to make music. I, I have my, my own ideas about where that comes from, um, but it's almost like retrospectively, you know, as a child, I just was doing it, you know, I, I had an interest, you know, my parents have told me about things that I um, did, like playing the keys of the keyboard or piano that was in our house when I was very young. I don't even remember that. Well, I don't remember that. I, I, funny enough, I have a little 
picture of actually myself just as a gray piano um, painted in a very strange way. But you know, um, but it, it was I suppose it was just sound. You know, the idea of sound and and frequencies that actually are you know distinct. You know, and the idea of melody, whatever I was drawn to that. Um, they also told me that I used to be able to whistle or sing melodies that they had played on records, you know. Um, and they, they loved music. My parents both loved music, but they weren't musicians. My dad played the banjo ukulele, which was a sort oh, of... Oh, the little one, yeah. yeah or the, a baritone, which was slightly bigger, so it was a deeper. But, you know, he used to, he was self-taught, and he used to play that on the beach in the 50s. So he was one of those guys who would go singing, you know. Shabum shabum, you know, like that yeah. was kind of like the four, the gold medley, as they called those four chords, which they're still using pop songs now, you know. Absolutely. Um, but um, you know, then I suppose my parents moved around a lot, and I think that kind of I suppose distilled something in me, which I suppose is a bit of a need. Um, it was kind of companionship, you know. You know, music was a kind of guitar. I was very much drawn to guitar. I think it's also knowing, you know, there was a lot of hearing pop music or, or Beatles and Stones and stuff like that and Hendrix. Um, talking about like, you know, I was born in '61, so you know, my parents were really into the Beatles. My dad came to London to study in '64, so he was here during that golden era, you could say, of '64 to '67, '68. I think they left, and so my first schools were in London. Um, as a you know, uh, obviously primary school, and um, and then when we went back to America, I uh, was like eight, I think, or yeah, um, seven or eight, seven must have been seven, and um, I was they already kind of I they already knew I was into music. They started me doing piano lessons, but I was very I was always sitting down and working stuff out. Mm -hmm. You know, I was always like by ear, so I was very drawn to working things out myself by ear. Did you take like a lot of initiative with, you know, practicing your instruments? I would things? I was almost obsessive. Yeah. I would I would take my guitar everywhere. I took mm. my guitar to bed. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I used to yeah. literally you know, I was really it was almost a bit of an obsession I suppose. But for me, you know, going back to this reason, the underlying kind of thing, it was a connection. Um, I think it was really, I see it now as a bit of a vehicle for maybe just working out and sort of dealing with some emotional stuff that mm -hmm. was to do with moving around a lot. Mm -hmm. um, retrospectively, that's an interest of mine to sort of see the relationship and understand more in my teaching the relationship between those underlying motives and why, why do we become musicians because it's a crazy profession. I mean, let's face it. it. Is. You know, um, so there has to be, you know, and I think we can see a lot of artists have some kind of strange background. Either a lot of often moving around a lot, for instance, might be something. You know, um, some kind of trauma. Not to be too dramatic. You know, that can often be a motivation, um, a sense of being different or outside of the world. So, you know, and that's in a way maybe why. You know, great artists, music artists can make good commentary about mm -hmm. the world because you're sort of standing from outside. So, um, like I said, that's retrospective. But you know, that my parents started me in the classical thing, but I had my guitar would take me to school, and I started band with another guy who was felt probably similar to me, and yeah. we ended up having a band. And even at the age of nine, we were called. I think our first name was either Cloudy Heaven. Yeah, Cloudy Heaven. Did it change a lot? Were you like, no, this is the band name, well, like we every week or something? Different things. I think there was like, I mean, I can't remember what we came from, but it was at one point Electric Apple. Uh, <laughs> but that was on the name, but but definitely Cloudy Heaven was our was our 
our name that we sort yeah. of had for this little yeah. band, the three of us, me, Gunn, and Reggie Jeffries, and um, Tommy Murray, you know, and... But yeah, so I don't know if I have I answered the question. I can't remember. I know. <laughs> I've gone off on a tangent. We go so far. No, no, it's, it's fine. Could you perhaps tell us? I mean, so you, um, I'm just going to skim over. You played the viola. Your parents got you on that. You mm-hmm. played like in orchestras and stuff when yeah. you were in London, around London. Um, that was so later. That's what later, came back. yeah, yeah. So obviously, went back to America when I was seven, mm-hmm. and I was we were there for five years. Right in Massachusetts and then they decided to, to leave America and come to Europe and that was a kind of permanent move that was quite a difficult you know wrench mm-hmm. um, it was to do with a lot of feelings they had about America at the time since 73 you know Nixon impeached being impeached and my parents were quite radical my you know the, my, they went peace marches and all that kind of stuff we used to be doing that they were quite you, I'm not hippies because they weren't like hippie in that way my dad was a university professor by then, mm-hmm. um, so they were quite straight in certain respects, but they were very left, I think you could say, you know, yeah. and um, so, yeah, when we moved to London, that was when my dad started, he, brought, he came home with a viola one day and said, hey, your son, you're going to play this, yeah. and I was like, oh, Why the right. viola, though? Yeah. <laughs> well, because, you know, they always need viola players, really, yeah. you know, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, and yeah. I was starting quite late, um, but because I play guitar, you know, it wasn't completely. I mean, I know it's a it's a completely different sort of position, mm-hmm. posture to play the viola. You know, but, but the strength still, is there in exactly. your fingers. Exactly, and it's yeah. also a coordination between like strumming. You could sort of equate strumming and fingers on the on the on the thing, or you know, plucking to mm-hmm. bow, and it's still a kind of similar coordination. So yeah. I, I progressed very quickly. I was, I think, I did my first grade. I went straight to grade three, and then and it was and I was in a school orchestra, all that kind of thing. And I think it did. I might even skip grade four and then grade five. And that's when I got involved with the CYM, you know, on the Saturdays, Mm -hmm. every Saturday. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I was always very rebellious about that. I kind of didn't, I was reluctant, even though I really appreciate it. Yeah. But I always had a band, you know. We were, you know. We're the rock and roll viola player. (laughs) Yeah, kind of. Or, yeah, sort of definitely, um, yeah. I mean, it kind of, I got into funk and soul quite early on. Mm -hmm. That was, Mm -hmm. you know, but but definitely start off with rock. Yeah, so uh, what, what kind of things were you doing when you were initially making money then from music? Well, I mean, the first, I mean, at the time, because I think this is 19, when I, le- when I left school, actually, you know, I, I probably shouldn't go into too much detail, but, you know, I actually ducked out of school halfway through my A-levels. Right. Um, because I just, well, I was actually playing the bands and I was doing stuff, and I just was like, it wasn't happening for me. Um, the school thing. Um, I did later on, obviously, go back and and, and um, get an education. <laughs> but um, but what at the time there was no places where you could study pop music. I mean, forget about it. You know, this is during the punk era, and I and I was into jazz and jazz fusion. So you know, the only place that even did anything similar was a course in Leeds. That was Leeds College of Music had a jazz course. And I actually auditioned for that and got in. But they let me in on my viola. Right. They did, because they wanted a viola and they put me in all these orchestras. And I mean, to be totally honest, I wasn't a straightforward jazz player. Like, I hadn't done the whole Niger thing. I wasn't like, you know, the swing thing. That was not the kind of jazz I was into. It was more jazz funk mm. and jazz fusion. Mm-hmm. And at the time, that was kind of I mean, sort of looked down upon, you know, here in the UK. You know, what jazz, that wasn't real jazz. Yeah. You know, 
it's much more accepting now, much more diverse. Do you think it was like your transatlantic upbringing which kind of gave you these like influences, yeah, the interest in jazz? I think it had a big part of it, you know, big, definitely a big part of it. Um, um, you know, the bands I was into were like Steely Dan or Earth, Wind & Fire and Weather Report. That's what I was listening mm. to when everyone kind of, my, a lot of my, you know, peers were listening to, were into punk, you know, yeah. and they were, you know, that, that was the punk era. And although I, I, I found a crew of people who were into that, you know, the Crusaders, I mean, or average white bands, um, a lot of those groups were what I was really getting into. Mm -hmm. But yeah, my first professional thing, my first professional, you know, job in the music industry was um, I left Leeds because I was getting gigs with a guy named Dick Hextel Smith mm -hmm. who's, who's quite a well well known respected sax player uh, in this country he was in a band called Coliseum 2 which was you know and he had a band at a time called Big Chief and I was getting debt gigs with him and it was really you know they all, these guys were all older guys they were like 20 years older than me um, but it was great, and I would come take a train down from Leeds to do these gigs, and it was in a, basically their pub gigs, you know. And that wasn't, I was making just enough to cover my train fare, and I, and also I was going out with a girl who I was missing. So I just, oh. I, just I left Leeds. No. I left yeah. Leeds because it was like, you know, all they, you know, all they were wanting me to do was playing these orchestras, and I, you know, I wasn't really there for that. And yeah. I, and I just, so I kind of like, I, I was very sort of, kind of very haphazard. I was still looking for a place where what I wanted to do or what I did or what I was interested in could be developed and there was really wasn't anything. Um, if I had been around now, I would have been here. Yeah, you know, yeah. Really. I mean, there's actually choices as well. There's places you can go that have slightly different uh, focus, maybe emphasis musically. But um, what I did at that point after leaving was I applied for a job to be work in a studio. Mm -hmm. And I, my first job was as was making the tea in a studio called Matrix. Yeah. And you know, my, my plan was to hang out in the studio, learn how to how to work, you know, maybe be able to kind of work or get to know people through that. And that sort of worked. That's that's where I kind of, you know, started making connections yeah. and, and um, getting into professional work. Mm -hmm. I mean talk, talking about those connections, you worked with a great deal of music musicians during that time around like the eighties and nineties. Mm -hmm. Um were there Perhaps you could talk about um, Rebop for a little bit. Were there any particular relationships you had with people in the industry that helped your development or your direction in your well, career? That's, you know, that's really interesting. You know, Rebop um, was... I met Rebop in this studio, Matrix Studios. Mm -hmm. He was friends with the owner. And um, this is a studio called... It was the studio in Little Street. And uh, the kind of albums that were... There's a real diversity of albums that were made there. There was, like... Probably a lot of these people won't know, but like one was like Adam Ant's Kings of the Wild Frontier or Marion Faithful's Broken English. Um, a lot of the recording for um, um, a lot of the overdubs for for, for uh, Grace Jones's sort of seminal album, you know, with What's the Bumper Baby and all those tracks were recorded there. Mark Miller Monday was the producer used to work there. But it was a funky place. It was like very, it was, it was not like a place kind of pristine, very, you know, it was like a, it was like people used to hang out there a lot. So this guy Rebob was hanging out there and would play on sessions and he knew the internet. And he actually once heard me playing piano uh, in between when I was, you know, making tea and not cleaning the toilets, which is what I was, yeah. my job was, <laughs> uh, getting sandwiches for people. And he said, oh, you know, I should get you in the studio. So he basically got me to, to record in the studio one night. The owner gave him, was used to give him free studio time. So my first sessions were kind of like, 
you know, sessions late at night with Rebop and they were crazy kind of African music and just jams, jazz, Afro jazz basically. That's yeah. what it was. And um, and then from there we actually he actually we initiated he sort of bands called mm. MP Giants. And uh, we we worked for like basically three years together developing material and um, and now of course I was doing sessions professional which was paid but this was like Rebo was a really key person for me during that period mm. um, and had a great way of working with musicians and people. He was very about sort of connection and spontaneity and getting the groove right and, and really listening, you know, to each other and um, finding that, that, that pulse where you're all feeling the same space, mm. the same downbeat, you know. Um, so yeah, from there, I mean, you know, there was another producer named Adam Kidron who I used to get a lot of professional work with, and he was someone who was an engineer, and I did a lot of recordings with him. He was producer, like I did an album for Squiddy Politi, which at the time they were pretty, pretty big band in a way. Uh, Orange Juice, who had quite a big reputation. Um, a guy named Edwin Collins has had gone on to do, you know, quite a lot, and. Um, so he was, this was his first album, you know, um, I did brass arrangements on that and played some keyboards. Um, and then he got this job with Ian Jury, which was sort of probably my sort of biggest gig to date. Um, and that was a, you know, quite a big responsibility because that was also my first opportunity to write with a major artist. He got me to write half the album with him and also to MD the band and choose a musician. So that was, I was 20 when that happened. So mm -hmm. the three years with Rebop led to that. Sadly, Rebop had died just about six months before that, so that was kind of almost why the band ended and fell apart. So that was a very tough time okay. for me and the other guys. Mm -hmm. It was quite challenging. So, I mean, that relationship sort of took you into like the realms of being a musical director by the time mm. um, we've gotten to this point. I mean, how, you know, because you've worked with, like, you know, directing, like, albums and like while on tour and things as well how do you like approach the task of being an MD for a particular project like what were the key things that you're wanting to consider when entering something new with a group of people uh, I think you know it's if you're working with an artist um, and you're MD you're sort of essentially their right hand man you're sort of you know essentially an extension of what they want so you know they you know, they would choose a musical director based on a whole bunch of different criteria, you know. They're essentially would be entrusting you uh, to help get their sound and their feel of their music, you know, translated for live. Um, or if it's if it's studio recording, of course, then you know you're maybe organizing the musicians and you know kind of getting the parts and overseeing the parts. You know, maybe depending, it might even also be some arranging involved. You know, um, I mean these days, you know, of course, a lot of these roles can kind of you know cross cross over into other roles. You know, I was playing, of course, on it as well. And I mean, it depends really, you know, also some MDs these days might be if it's theater jobs or if it's, you know, MDing a covers band. I mean, there'll be different responsibilities. Personally, you know, what my approach is very much like, I think it's important that everyone you're working with feels good, you know, um, feels good about what they're doing, feels good about their, what they're, they're contributing. Um, maybe they might not be as vocal as other members, but um, I think, you know, I think musicians perform their best when they feel comfortable, when they feel relaxed, when they feel they're wanted, 
you know, if you're under pressure, if you feel like you're going to make a mistake, personally, I don't think that's a good place to to be making music because, you know, it's an emotional thing when you mm. when you make music. I think you can't hide that. It translates to how you touch your instrument and what you do and what will come out of it. And I think just things gel and they get sort of also like a multiplication of, of things, you know, of the feeling of the music, if it, everyone's really feeling good and working together well. So that's kind of what I tried to do when I'm building, when I'm working with any band. You know, yeah. when I'm working with my jazz band now, when I hire musicians, I don't say this is how it goes. I mean, that's just the way it is for me. I, you know, I kind of, I, I kind of try to get them to want to make it as good as they want to, they can do. I want them to, you know, want to perfect their mm -hmm. contribution as much as possible so to inspire them to, to want to give their best to it. Yeah. Um, no, it's, it's interesting because it is quite a difficult thing to balance, I think, when you're trying to get the job done mm. and also trying to make people feel like they're invited to, mm. you know, mm. be, be part of this experience and mm. play their mm. best rather than feeling the pressure it is a, the it situation. Is, yes, it's a good, I mean, it's a really interesting area to discuss. I mean, you know, it's... I mean, you know, if you're all reading notes, it's quite, you know, people know what, where they stand. They have to, the notes are on the page. Mm. Um, I mean, when people are learning parts as well, and they're, let's say it's, you know, a, a sort of a, a rhythm section, um, and they're trying to play and sound like someone else, that's kind of, it's tricky, you know, um, you know, to get them to feel exactly the same way. Um, and... There's lots of ways you have to go about that. I think it's it's not, it's a process. The expectation that they were just—it's not just the part; it's the pulse, it's the feel of um, of what's behind the actual part. Um, I think that's really a key. If you have a band and you're inviting people to come and you know, it's about how you who you choose to get do it. You know, who you choose to be involved—that's a really big part. It's like casting. You know, you. If you cast your, your film well, you know, letting, kind of let the actors do what they do, yeah. it sort of, you know, it goes well, you know. Um, so, yeah, the chemistry between people, who you choose to do it, those are really key things, I think. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, it's never going to be exactly the same, but, you know, you don't want, you know, to, oh, maybe it's not really important, you know. Um, and when I mean exactly the same, all the parts might be the same, but it's not going to feel exactly the same. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so... Skipping ahead a few years, there there was a point in um, your career where you didn't really feel like you were able to continue making a living off of music and things, um, perhaps like responsibilities and like family and stuff like that. Could you tell us a little bit about, um, I don't know, your, your, your thinking behind perhaps not wanting to be involved in music as much as you were? I mean, like, were, were there any kind of big dreams that you'd had at the beginning of your career which you were scared about not realizing or, yeah, yeah definitely I mean you know um well you know when I I, I got married um when I was 20 26 and um no actually 28 <laughs> sorry <laughs> when I was 28 um I met my wife when I was 26 25 in fact and um and we'd been together for a while, and I had some success during that period. I worked, did an album with Curiosity Killed a Cat, who were, had been a number one band, who had been like the equivalent to like, I don't know, the Backstreet Boys or One Direction are now. They had been really the teeny bopper bands. They, and uh, I got involved with a second album, which I wrote and played keyboards on. And uh, the album came out and sold half a million copies, which 
at that time was not enough, you know, to sustain them into their third deal, mainly because we had spent so much money doing that. <laughs> and, um, but, you know, there was a lot of expectations, you know, I'd done the Ian Jury thing, I'd done Curious Kill the Cat thing. Those two projects were like, each of them were like two or three years of my life. And, you know, they neither of them delivered in terms of, you know, the, the, the sort of singles and stuff like that and the kind of um, income that I had hoped would be. So, you know, I came out of, out of that and, uh, you know, I was depending on sessions, you know, which, which were okay, but they're intermittent. Um, and I need, my, we had a, my, 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 my wife and I had a, had a child and uh, when I was when she was about six months old, I was coming over to Christmas, you know, um, I had one, I was basically doing one regular day a week of work, teaching in a C category prison. What were you teaching in prison? I was teaching music. Yeah. Teaching music. I mean, it was a pretty wild experience. <laughs> I mean, C category, they're basically about to be paroled. Right. I mean, they had all kinds of criminal records, you know, in terms of what they had done. I didn't really, that was not my concern. But I knew there were some dangerous people there, whatever. But they were—they had obviously shown good behavior, and this was part of it. And that was—that was cool. I mean, you know, there was a little technology stuff going on, and there were just some jamming and playing. And um, so, um, but that was one day a week of work. And you know, we were getting, getting to debt. And my dad had a business, a travel business, and he—he he sort of invited me if I wanted to come and get involved in the business, and then you know, work with him. And and um, and I. Basically, I was at a point where I realized that, you know, I had given it a good shot. Um, how, I mean, how long was I then? I suppose I would have been about 32, you know, um, 32 going to 33. And I felt like, you know, maybe it's time to sort of move on, give up, you know. I gave, I, you know, had really done some good things or given it a good shot. It was, not, it was tough, though. I mean, at Christmas, I was really conflicted. I had a lot of sort of resentment about having to do it and yet also the realization that I love my family and want to look after them and support them and I just so anyway I decided to that I would go and for it and I would still enjoy making music and mm -hmm. it would be something I could do on the side and have fun and pleasure with it and maybe I started thinking about it in terms of maybe I would have more fun with it without the pressure and you know there's a lot to be said for that you know to be yeah. honest with you um, you know I don't you know, failure, I mean, you know, it's like really, this business is so, it's like, it's like, it's rolling the dice, it's like, it's like playing the roulette wheel. I mean, as we all know, I think all of us can say it's not really about like, the, the best musicians or the best songs or the ones that are, or the best artists or the ones who are making it. It's not meritocratous in that way. Yeah. It's there's so many different aspects that have to intersect, you know, to do with business, timing, all different kinds of things, you know, temperaments. Um, and so, you know, I can see that now, but at the time, it definitely felt like, you know, I was giving up a dream, it was hard, and it was not easy to face that. The irony of it, of course, is that once I came to that decision, it was not long into January, mm -hmm. uh, 94, but I got this call, which really came out of the blue, um, and asking if I want to tour with Steve Winwood in Traffic. He was reforming the band Traffic, which was a sort of a late 60s, early 70s, seminal English rock group I didn't really know during the material, but you know, they were big in the States and we ended up, I ended up getting involved with that and you know, going, getting probably the, being paid the most money I've ever been paid as well. Yeah. 
Um, so I went from like literally, I'm about to give up because I'm broke to making the most money I've ever made. <laughs> so it was like. It just goes to show you, you know, it's like a wheel of fortune. It just. Exactly. Spinning the roulette wheel, man. Choose a number, you know. I mean, it can really be like that, mm -hmm. you know. I mm -hmm. mean. You know, it was, it was really weird. It was a real weird moment. I mean, to get a bit personal, I have a sort of a spiritual connection that I need to, that I need in my life. That is sort of goes beyond just me trying to control my life. And you know, I sort of, I kind of accept certain things. I mean, I wouldn't, I don't really know how to name it, but you know, it's it keeps me going. You know, it's it keeps me recognizing what's important because I. I think ultimately to be a musician is kind of a privilege and it's a kind of a quite a sort of a it's a big ask you mm. know to do something you love and you want to do and to actually name it work um, so you know it's that's just how I view it you know um, and so I think you know in a way I kind of accept the fact that it's, it's, it's a bit of in fact there's a term that I've recently read in an academic paper it's, it's radical uncertainty yeah. you know we deal with a radical uncertainty um, you know, but so I think you know, keeping in mind that you know, there's there's a big queue of incredible talented people who are just as important and viable as me, and you know, and that you know, that that could that's just the way it is, you know. So, um, that, but that's helped me, you know, yeah. to kind of keep a perspective. I've, I've worked with some people who find themselves on a pedestal, and for whatever reason, they end up believing it and so it's a long way to crash down yeah you know when things don't work out and we see that a lot with artists people like amy winehouse or michael jackson or prince you know you're not able to maybe ask for help you're not able to take advice you know you know you you think you're pretty important and it's hard not to, to get drawn into that you know, mm -hmm. I've been lucky enough to be like on the right hand side of a lot of people yeah. who are very well known. I mean, Jazzy B, Steve Wingwood, Ian Jury. You know, I've been literally their kind of second in command at points. So I've seen how difficult that can be that world because everyone around you treats you like you're you're gold yeah and you're special and everything so if that happens to you for years and years and years you, you know it's hard not you, to believe you, it you do forget it it's yeah. it's funny because I think coming into the music industry when you're actually trying to learn about it and be a part of it you hear like a lot of stories and you think oh yeah there's lots you know like, diva characters and like people treat what you said like putting people on pedestals and things and, and, and then you don't actually realise until you're starting to talk to the people involved in the industry that that, that does actually happen and it is quite like you know in, in, in terms of just navigating people and stuff it seems like quite a bit of a labyrinth and things at times definitely it can be and people you know different people deal with it uh, to different degrees well you know well or not mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so you know what can happen of course is that you don't know how you can deal with it until you get there and it's, it's there's so many you know kind of uh, random aspects that can unfold. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think Amy Winehouse, I mean, that film for me, when I saw the, the recent documentary, yeah, yeah. was, you know, it was sort of so tragic about it is that what I see in her is that she really just wanted to be a jazz singer. She didn't want to really be someone playing to massive stadiums. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the industry or the, the record company saw that she had this potential and they, it sort of put it together with, you know, great producer, you know, Mark Ronson and, and, and that 
ended up being this massive thing that, she, you know, as a person, she wasn't prepared for. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And there was no support, really. There was no real knowledge of how to deal with that. And that's why, going back to something I think I was saying before we started this, about what really interests me is the underlying motives for people to be musicians. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, I do see a real connection between trauma or, you know, having a sense of being outside of the world that motivates a lot of musicians and creative people mm -hmm. to to kind of want to kind of express something or see something and it's it's a complex relationship and you know when it when it's involved involving people with, who are or just businessmen who are really thinking about the dollar or the pound it's very difficult for them to see because they just don't have that's not they're not focusing on mm, that they don't mm -hmm. see that mm -hmm. they don't want to see that you know yeah so you know um you know anyway it's 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 an interesting challenge. No, it is. Um, I'm aware of just how much time we've got left, which is not a lot. <laughs> so maybe we could save some of these questions uh, for later. Um, I, I, you know, you've done a lot of work with um, score writing and composition, which we've sort of yet to delve into. Um, can you tell us a little bit about, um, you know, your decision to transition into that um, from, you know, songwriting? Yeah. Um, I suppose it was a change of emphasis that occurred at a certain point in my life and I think it once again it was after you know probably two decades you know of focusing on trying to write you know a good a great song you know a good song great song uh, or great songs with with people and also my own um, and I just got to the kind of I suppose I got to the end of that that energy uh, I didn't know didn't anticipate that was going to happen um, but you know having done like a two albums, you know, with the injury, and, and I, I wrote, co-wrote a song on Soul to Soul, and also with Jazzy, we wrote a song which went on, which was Tina Marie, which was, you know, still, you know, great, great things that, you know, how it had opportunities to do, but, um, but, you know, by that point, I actually moved to Nashville, and uh, I was there because I got a song on a record that, you know, was an award-winning record, a, 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 a Dove Award, um, woman named Kathy Tricoli and that was a great experience and the producer invited me there to come and write do stuff and it was during that period that I, I was just coming to my 40th birthday and you know or maybe yeah and I just I don't know I just decided it felt like I was just getting bored with it you know a little bit feeling like going around the same wheel over and over again it just started to feel like that and um, I was interested, getting interested in like bigger forms, more, more um, challenging forms. Just felt like I was neglecting my music as well. You know, I just, yeah. that was another time when I got back into practicing every day. I started, you know, kind of trying to get my technique up, and I just, I just felt like I just needed to develop as a musician. You know, I felt like I was getting bogged down by trying to write songs and try commercial songs. So yeah, I mean, it just, it was not something I expected. But it, it kind of gave me a whole new lease of life, so to speak, and new energy. Um, I got enthusiastic again about music. And I got back in touch with that initial kind of like spark of excitement. And uh, studied, studied composition with a guy in Nashville on the Michael Rose. Went to Vanderbilt. I ended up being a teaching assistant. So there's another thing that started happening. Part of that was I got into academia a little bit. Yeah, yeah. You know, studying scores, getting to composers. And, um, you know, I, I was working, I rented space where I was writing my songs, but also this place was a music production house. And um, 
called 615 Music in Nashville, and they used to also provide the scores for A&E documentaries and biography documentaries that were sent to them, literally, from L.A., a company called Greystone. They used to send these finished tapes that said, you know, get someone to score it. Yeah. So they gave them... I, I did, like, eight of these... Um, haunted history documentaries <laughs> for A&E Channel. I did a couple of biography channel documentaries, one on Kevin Bacon and one on John Bon Jovi. Right. And it was just me in a room with my guitars, my keyboards, just writing music and doing what I wanted, you know, whatever. I, and there was no director. So it was great. And I was given about a week to do them, turn around. Mm -hmm. And um, I suddenly realized that actually... You know, I could do all this stuff mm -hmm. and go home at six o'clock and see my wife and daughter. Yeah. As well, so that was also nice and get paid. Yeah. So, so was it sort of like a lifestyle change as well at that point? Yes, for you? it was that. You know, a big part was that I spent so much time in studios. You know, I mean, and you know, late nights in studios, and I was just like, oh man, you know, I wanted to go for a walk in the park. You yeah. Know, I wanted to be outside. I wanted to just, you know, not like I. I mean, I'm still was still hardworking, quite driven. But I just, you know, it's a sort of, like I said, lifestyle change. It's changed in, 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 in um, and also the kind of people. I mean, you know, I've got into scoring, working with directors, film directors and stuff, um, or TV, you know, directors. It was just a different kind of process, different kind of conversation as well. Um, but, yeah, so I kind of moved away from it. And um, I didn't give up songwriting, but it definitely mm -hmm. has taken a, a back seat. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I think it's been healthier for me to move away from songwriting for a period because... I, not being in the middle of it and trying to do it has given me a lot more objectivity, I think. Yeah. You know, and also, I'm looking at things on a broader, you know, sense over you know many many decades, mm. not just looking mm. at what's happening now. I got to make it happen, you know, or that kind of thing, you know. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Yeah, um, I mean, you've been learning new things throughout your career trajectory and things. Um, and it is, it is it's quite funny because sometimes when you do start learning something new, you get a lot of frustration, especially if you're proficient at something else in the same field. Um, how, how do you approach, you know, take, taking on something new? Like, I mean, when, when you were learning conducting or something, you know, how, how, how did you deal with sort of like going back to square one in that sort of element? Well, I mean, you know, it's, it's a good question. I mean, there's only so much time one has in one life, you know. And I suppose it's... Um, I mean, taking the conducting thing, for example, I, I wanted to learn how to do basic conducting. I wanted just to know how to stay in front of a group of musicians and, and kind of do it basically, you know, in a correct way. Wave your hands and hope for yeah. the best, man. I mean, you know, and, um, you know, I'm never going to be a fantastic conductor like who goes out and is, as a hired conductor. But I, I, you see, I think this is something I've learned as I've done it a little bit is that when you're the composer and you're conducting the musicians, there's a kind of a different kind of connection with the musicians, uh, and I and also I it can be really fun to be there in the room with the musicians, and you know um, I don't always do it these days now. Sometimes I like to be in the room and kind of hearing it, and I, you know a couple times I've actually hired a conductor mm -hmm. to do that. But you know the the, the beauty of it is that um, you know if there's things I want to change or things like can you know can. You know, um, first I, I love writing for strings, and obviously being a viola player, I kind of have uh, um, experience of how to play the instrument as well. 
But um, so you know, it's really nice for me when I'm out there working with string players. You know, I can say, can you kind of move the bow, you know, further away from the bridge to get a more airy sound, or can you, you know, can you, you know, sort of not, you know, bring into the broad the end of the note or something like that. You know, so you can get into more detail. And if you're right there, rather than doing it through the top back, it's a kind of a different connection. But um, yeah, I mean, I find it interesting. I find it, you know. I find, I mean, learning is important. I think, you know, particularly, I think, more creative musicians and to grow. It's, it's not even just about learning, it's also about growing and uh, acquiring, you know, more of uh, uh, more ability to express ourselves, you know, or to express our vision or whatever it is. Um, so it might move into, you know, I mean, having an understanding of, of the visuals. If you're an artist, you know, you're going to have an idea of how you want to be presented. Um, the more uh, clear idea you have about that, then the less chance you're going to be manipulated or told what to do. You know, I mean, you know, the, there's the X factor kind of school of thought where you let someone just completely shape you. Mm -hmm. You know, which is kind of, in a way, traditionally what a lot of what's been, you know, what the music business is about. But if I think in these days, if you can get a very strong, unique idea of how you are and the sound and learn about, you know, you don't have to be an engineer. To, to kind of get a great sound, but if you learn about enough to know what what effects do you know, or learn how what happens when you do certain processes to sound, to direct an engineer, you know, or just find the right people who can do it, whatever it is, to build a team around it, um, it gives you just that much more opportunity to to sort of be unique or to allow your your true vision to sort of stand out and be recognized as such. So yeah. yeah, I mean it's part it's part of that process. Um, you know, I learn skills because I want to be able to do something. I want to be able to fulfill a vision. You know, I've written some classical pieces of music. I mean, I've only had one and performed, but you know, I, I I still hear them, and maybe one day they will. But it's the challenge of doing it, and I've learned a lot from doing it. You know, as well. You know, about combining yeah. instruments and stuff like that. Mm, that's fantastic. Um, there's so much more that I'd love to ask you, but I don't think we have enough time to do it. So I, I would just really like to thank you for coming along, chatting That's with us. My pleasure. Sitting in this tiny room with people playing the saxophone above our heads and walking That's a wonderful in. room. It is. It is, it is a funny little room. <laughs> um, anyway, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, I enjoyed it. Well, thanks for asking me. This was Music Box. Jingles are by Jean-Pierre Volksman and Alex Murphy. Music Box was created by Julia Grasping, Judith Muzaki, Olivia Rafferty, Jakas Kappen, and Stefan Sikora for London Centre of Contemporary Music. Until next time. <laughs> <laughs>